We are back. And in this hour, we are talking about the controversial uh, subject about race and race as a category. Some academics and professors think that we should eliminate using race as a category. And here to help us understand why those professors and academics think that way and help us understand if that's a practical way to think about race. Uh, We have three brilliant professors joining us. Uh, Professor Ellis Monk, he is a sociology professor at Harvard University. SUNY Professor Sheena Mason, uh, she is an African-American woman uh, who says she used to identify as African-American, but now she views herself as raceless. And Vanderbilt University Professor of African-American Studies, David Icard, is here. And I made a mistake earlier and called him Daniel, but his name is David. And I know that well because I know him well. So <laughs> welcome to all of you. This is such an interesting topic. And I uh, became fascinated or interested, I should say, in it by reading an October Washington Post article uh, that talked about a professor, Professor uh, Carlos Hoyt, I guess, who is kind of leading this charge of trying to convince the United States government to do away with race as a category on the next census that comes up in 2030. And I just got really fascinated by this whole concept. So I, I want to start with you, Professor Eichhardt, because you're a professor of African-American studies. When in this country did we start using racial categories and assigning racial categories to people? Well, that actually started uh, before, way before there was a United States of America. That was part of the transatlantic um, slave trade. Um, And um, so we're talking hundreds of years ago. Um, And it was a way to um, distinguish Europeans from, uh, from Africans um, in a very exploitative way, um, both to exploit resources, uh, but also to colonize and, and dominate them culturally. So um, Sadia Hartman in, in her book, uh, Lose Your Mother, has a, has a great uh, line about this. Uh, and she says that Africans didn't become Africans until Europe, Europeans invaded Africa. You know, before then they were, they identified themselves by their tribes, right? By their affiliations. Um, and so it wasn't this whole idea of Africa as monolithic, black folks as somehow sharing some kind of collective cultural identity. Um, all of that comes from that transatlantic um, slave trade. And so that race in that context was able to facilitate the dehumanization of Africans as commodities. Uh, But to be clear, it did not introduce slavery. Slavery has been something that has been around as long as man has been around. So slavery as an institution, including in Africa, has existed um, for for as long as there has been uh, mankind. What was unique about the transatlantic slave trade and the ways in which it was you know, race was imposed on black folks was it was the first time in modern history where slavery became a capitalistic enterprise and bodies became commodities. Right. So that's what is particularly unique and heinous about this brand of slavery um, on a European um, on level. So that's how, you know, black folks 
became black folks in that mm -hmm. regard. So, uh, Professor Monk, in this article, this po Watch Post article that got me interested in this topic, it talks about the 2003 uh, completion of the Human Genome Project. Tell us what the completion of that project, well, what it has to do with this conversation and what were the findings uh, of that project? Sure. So uh, when we think about the Human Genome Project and all of the genomics research that's come after that, I think what's really clear from all of that research is that there's no real biological, genetic, genomic basis uh, to think about human beings as divided by race uh, in any way that we think about it colloquially in the United States of America, certainly not with like the census categories. Those census categories in the United States do not line up to some kind of real existing genomic, genetic division in humankind. In fact, we're all very much the same genetically, genomically speaking. So I think that's really the take home point there. And some people then proceed from that point to say that, you know, because there is no biological basis uh, to think about human beings as being divided by race, then why are we dividing human beings by race on something like the census? And, and so to say that there's no biological difference between human beings, in fact, the article says that humans globally share 99.9% .9 of their DNA. What does that really mean, uh, Professor Monk? So, I mean, does it mean like we have all the same organs? We <laughs> all have, you know, the same attributes. We all walk and talk. Is that what it means to say we're 99.9% .9 you know, share the same DNA? Roughly, it just means that there's really not enough genetic difference among human beings to say that there are different races or different species of being. In fact, uh, one of the take-home points from a lot of this genetic research is that there's actually more uh, heterogeneity just on the African continent alone, because that's where you know the cradle, cradle of life is, right? That's where the most diversity is genomically, is actually just in Africa itself. And when we think about ethno-racial categories, as Professor Icard really you know, brilliantly pointed out, we talk about its link to the transatlantic slave trade and all of that in the United States. Well, if we think that all Black people are kind of lumped into this racial category Black and that there's some biological basis, then that doesn't line up with the fact that the African continent from which Black people you know, come, given the transatlantic slave trade, actually has more genetic diversity than any other location on the planet Earth. So there's a huge disjuncture there, right? There's a huge disconnect between the genetic diversity and the ethno-racial categories that we tend to use, especially in the United States, which just lump all Black people together. Right. Yeah. And so let me ask you, uh, Professor Mason, in this article, it says that you used to identify as an African-American person, woman, and now you consider yourself raceless. What does that mean and how did you evolve to that point? Well, I want to correct um, the quote. It says that I used to identify as a black woman and now I identify as raceless. And that distinction is important because I still identify as indeed African-American. Um, I just view African-American as not, not as a racial category, but as an ethnic category. And I arrived at my conclusion in terms of what we should do with race or our belief in race as a racial skeptic, largely because of the history um, and the scientific facts that prof the other professors mentioned, right? On a fundamental level, if we understand that racism, as we now come to think of it in places like the United States, um, operated and, and stemmed from the economic and social class 
hierarchies that were already on the ground and that the early modern Europeans co-opted the concept of race that already existed to reflect hierarchies in other places, but then put into it the language of white and black, which already had connotations and denotations um, uh, to emphasize and maintain this hierarchy, then that dehumanization of people who are racialized as Black still gets carried on, often unintentionally, by the same language and by our continued practice of racialization. And um, as a graduate of Howard University, where I earned my PhD, and as a specialist in African-American and Caribbean literature, my, my research focused on racism only, right, uh, led me to recognize that to undo racism, we have to undo our belief in race and our practice of racialization. So what would that look like, uh, Professor Eichhardt, if we eliminated race as a category, got rid of it on the census, got rid of it on job applications, college applications, all the places, medical forms, all the places where we're asked to identify ourselves as, you know, Black or, or some race? What, what would that look like? What would society look like? Well, you know, I read that article that, you know, in the New York Times that you um, referenced, and I, I have to uh, confess to being a, a bit flummoxed by the logic. Um, James Baldwin said that um, the only reason we have the race problem that we have now is because white people need the quote unquote nigger or the Negro. And he says, until white people no longer need the Negro, um, we're going to continue to have this race problem. Um, that article didn't mention once, which, again, was shocking, but in some ways also not surprising, white supremacy. Right. You could change all you want to about um, the ways in which we engage uh, identity as as a race, as a group of people. But it's. It is the need for anti-blackness within the context of white supremacy is why we continue to have race and racism. Black people don't control that. If you look at the history of black folks, right, black people have always wanted to integrate themselves into U.S. culture. They've always wanted to move past, right, race as a category that renders them inferior, Right from County Cullen's, like I want to be an artist, to Langston Hughes' response to him in the Negro Artist and the Racial Mountain, where it says, "Like, look, you say you only want to be thought of as an artist and not a black artist, but in America, being normal and being an artist in that context is race white." So even when you think, "Okay, let's eliminate this language, let's eliminate this concept," the reality of it is, the reason why we have race in this context is because it has a material um advantage for those folks who identify as white and just not uh acknowledging that within a context of how it plays out in real bodies and real material economic realities not only becomes pointless to some degree but it actually aids in anti-blackness in my opinion and it actually reinforces white supremacy because now you get to continue to do what you're doing um, and erase the ability to actually name it, to name it for what it is, which is in this case clearly and has been for a long time anti-blackness. 
Professor Monk, I think that's similar to what you said in the article or what you're quoted as saying. Is that your position on this, that eliminating race as a category would be worse for African-Americans? Yeah, I think it would be. I mean, one of the classes I teach here is a global comparative class on race and ethnicity. And if we think comparatively about, say, France, for in instance, which is infamous for not collecting ethno-racial statistics, uh, that's been one of the ongoing debates in their society, which is they know that they have a race problem, ethnicity problem, whatever label you want to call it. But because of the rules there around officially collecting that data, it makes it really difficult for them to make claims about ethno-racial inequality. And these claims would be then used in the public sphere to discuss um, policies to fix these problems. So as Professor Eichhardt pointed out, and I agree, uh, if you can't name the problem, how can you really fix it? So I think taking the language off the table uh, would do a great disservice to social justice and civil rights efforts in the United States. And I'd also like to point out that that's one of the main things, at least in this day and age, that the census is used to do, which is to provide this base of knowledge about what goes on in our society such that we can identify these inequities and actually address them. Uh, so I, I think taking the language off the table is impractical, and I think it actually would be a step backwards, particularly in the case of the United States, where race has mattered for a very, very long time. I think the one last thing I'd like to say really quickly, if we think historically about the census, one of the first census you know, that we took in the United States, 1790, the distinction there was actually free versus slave. There was no invocation really of black and white race on these on this early census. And yet this is during slavery. I don't think people would say that there was no racism back in 19, uh, 1790 because the, the language wasn't on the census. You didn't need the language, right? Mm -hmm. The words themselves are somewhat epiphenomenal. They're kind of orthogonal too. All of the actual now, come on, professor. Friends. Come on, Harvard professor. You just like dropped us, dropped two words on us so quickly. <laughs> say it again. Say I'm sorry. Again. So, what I'm saying is like they're distinct from right the <laughs> language that you see on the census, in a sense, is uncorrelated, it's not really linked to the system of white supremacy in a way that's so tight, like some people like to believe. Right on that early census, it just said free and slave. Yeah, this was a time where you had scientific racism and slavery, you name it, right? So is it really the census and the language on the census that's really so important here? I would argue that we need to take a step back uh, and realize that kind of like what Professor Icar was saying, regardless of the language on the census, you still have the systems in place. Mm -hmm. And at right. this point in 2023, having that language is actually essential to naming the problem and hoping to address it. All right, Professor Mason, I assume you don't agree with your two colleagues because you said that getting rid of the, the language, undoing race, I guess, uh, is the position that you're taking. Help us understand why what they're saying is not what you and obviously what Professor Hoyt believes. Um, well, I think I think there's actually more agreement here than um, what's being presumed. And so if I may state my case, um, I sure. didn't author. I didn't author the article. Um, it's also not my um, point of advocacy as it pertains to what the Census Bureau does or doesn't do. Additionally, I'm not advocating for us to skip to the good part, right, and just magically stop using particular language and racial designations and all of that. As I talk about in all of my scholarship and all of my teaching and in my forthcoming book. Um, 
the way, the fundamental way that we can get help more people recognize and acknowledge anti-Blackness vis-a-vis white supremacy is through a framework that frees people from the desi- the the machinery of racialization and racism itself. Whiteness as a barrier, for instance, which I've heard professors um, Eckhart and Monk talk about extensively in their own research and discovery. So I need you to hold that thought for me, Professor uh, Mason. We've got to take some news and some sports. But when we come forward, I want you to continue to state your position since you're correct. You did not write this article. And I want to make sure your position is, is clear to the listeners and viewers. Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back. And in this hour, we're talking about the use of racial categories. And joining me is Harvard sociology professor Ellis Monk, SUNY uh, professor Sheena Mason, as well as Vanderbilt University professor David Eichard. And uh, Professor uh, Mason, before we went to break, you were telling us about how you had come to uh, the position that you have that's stated in this article, although you said it's not necessarily stating your position accurately. So please finish uh, addressing how what your thoughts are on this whole use of race as the category. Thank you. Yeah, so in the article, I had, what, maybe five sentences attributed to me. Um, the rest of it are not... Um, my ideas. And so I want to make my ideas as clear as one can in a short amount of time. Um, I'm not advocating that we skip to the good part, right? Um, I'm in agreement with my colleagues and the countless other people who came before me who studied race and racism and advocated for human rights in places like the United States. There's something thoroughly pernicious about race and racialization. And there is this unintentional, continuous upholding of the problem of racism that I'm striving to help us get to the root of. And through my work, which is called The Theory of Racistness, and in my book that comes out in February, I show and offer an entirely different framework for how to help more people identify specifically anti-Black racism and as important, how to uh uproot it right both the causes and the effects of it that is my primary interest as a scholar activist as an activist scholar as a person who is racialized as black in this country and some of the ways that i offer um, folks in terms of how we can get to a, a future without racism which is central to me as an Afrofuturist, imagining that it is actually possible and practical to create a future without white supremacy um, includes things that we should do with language, right? Things that we should do with um, the kinds of lenses that we examine culture, ethnicity, class, and racism through. Um, but make no mistake, this is not colorblindness. This is not what's what's happened in France and continues to happen there. This is not pretending that racism doesn't exist. This is not saying racism exists, but we just need to erase the language and stop using it and get to the good part. That's not what I'm advocating for at all. And so at the outset, you said this might be a heated discussion, but to my mind, knowing Professor Eichard and Monk's work, um, at least as much as I do, 
I'm like, we're not in disagreement here. And we might be- Well, let me be clear. The article doesn't state your position that way. And I take it that, you know, articles get things wrong often and reporters, you know, cherry pick statements to make a point. But the article is very clear that Professor Carlos Hoyt uh, says that he wants to eliminate racial categories. He says, uh, quoted in this article as saying, uh, sometimes he will ignore the boxes and write in racialized black. His wife is, he quotes his wife in this article as well and says his wife will ignore the boxes and write in racialized white. He says he sometimes just makes an X. Uh, Obviously the census doesn't offer the kind of options I think he's looking for. And he says he's damned if he does and he's damned if he doesn't. So Professor Monk, there is a body of of experts out there that do want to eliminate these categories. Unless the whole article is wrong. Uh, Is that, I mean, you're obviously aware of these uh, academics like Hoyt. Sure. I don't think Hoyt is alone in that, even though I would say it's kind of uh, a more extreme position, for sure. Um, But it's not one that I haven't heard before. So absolutely, Hoyt is not totally alone in saying something like that. And sometimes when people make that kind of an argument, they even positively point to the case of France. So I've, I've heard this position held. It's just not one I hold, that's all. And and Professor Eichhardt, again, can Professor Hoyt isn't here, so he can't, you know, defend himself. But I'm sure you're familiar with either him or the work that he is uh, a champion of. What is it that he thinks we will accomplish if we do eliminate uh, these racialized, or, you know, racial categories? Well, I mean, you know, it 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 harkens, at least for me, and what I understand uh, in terms of the argument that. Uh, uh, he was making there in that argument in that uh, article it's a very clarence thomas-esque um logic which is profoundly hypocritical but also incredibly dangerous which is you know i mean and we look at clarence thomas who got into an ivy league school because of affirmative action who at least to some degree acknowledges that racism is still alive and well today, and yet voted down affirmative action because he pointed to affirmative action as perpetuating racism and racial inequality instead of white supremacy, which is kind of the height of hypocrisy, illogic, but also plays into this whole kind of uh, the erasure of race as a significant category. Because again, uh, race, as we also know, it's radically codified, right? So when you when you consistently survey white kids, white people, and you ask them, what's the first adjective that comes to mind to describe yourself? Um, the number one response typically is, well, I just describe myself as normal. When you ask African-Americans the same question, overwhelmingly, their response predictably is, I, the first thing that comes to mind is black. So you could look at those two and think, well, one says normal, the other says black. So it's black folks that are obsessed with race, except the reality is, as Langston Hughes pointed out to County Cullen, is that in the U.S., normalcy is conflated with whiteness, mm-hmm. right? So whiteness operates in this space of invisibility, right? And that invisibility, that invisibility of the normal is that what 
black folks have to get measured against all the time. Now, I'd be the first to say it would be it would be nice uh, to get to the good stuff um, in terms of being able to say, like, hey, let's meet at the at this point and talk about facts and let's talk about like our DNA and our commonality and, you know, sing Kumbaya and all the good stuff. Um, But the reality of it is white people like power. They like dominance that that has served them uh, well in terms of maintaining the upper hand throughout U.S. history. Um, And as Derek Bell has said, you know, it raises a permanent institution. Historically, that's been um, proven time and again. And unless something radically changes from what we already know, that's going to continue into the into the future. Right. So, yeah. I want to ask you this, uh, Professor Monk, because this is one of your colleagues at Harvard, and it's a Harvard historian, Henry Louis Gates. Uh, In this article, it says that Professor Gates urged the nation to devise a new language for talking about race, given what is now known about human origins. Uh, When we come forward, I want to ask you what that new language might look like. And if you've had a conversation with the Professor Henry Lewis Gates about what he's urging the nation to uh, do. Uh, Stay with us, KBLA Talk 1580. So Professor Monk, I know you don't speak for all Harvard professors, but there's several of you that are quoted in this article. Uh, One being uh, historian Henry Lewis Gates. So have you had a conversation with Professor Gates or do you know what he's referencing when he says this article says he's urging the nation to devise a new language for talking about race. And then I just, as I keep reading this article over, there's another colleague of yours in here, Harvard professor Tom B. Shelby. Uh, the sentence starts, some argue that identifying collectively by race has also enabled members of minority groups to more effectively fight for equal rights and then it says others, like Harvard professor Tommy Shelby, assert that battling oppression does not require a common Black identity. So y'all got a lot to say about race at Harvard. So first, Professor Gates, what's this new language that he thinks we should uh, adopt? Sure, I, I, you know, I'm careful to put words into any professor's <laughs> mouth, especially ones at my own university and my own department and all of that, right? Uh, but my understanding is that the new language really refers to all of the work on genetics and genomics, uh, which shows pretty compellingly that the kind of census categories that people are used to referring to in the United States um, do not line up to the scientific understanding of human difference. So Mm -hmm. if you take a genetic ancestry test, and there's lots of critiques around what those tests mean and what they don't mean and all of that. But one thing that they clearly do not do very well is just line up directly to a U.S. census category, because a lot of the time those results tell you about where your ancestors are from geographically. It's not really Mm -hmm. about your biology. It's about these population clusters distributed over the planet Earth over a certain amount of time. It tells you where your ancestors came from. And it's pretty rare that people aren't somewhat mixed to some degree when they take those tests, especially African-Americans, which in these tests, they show anywhere from 20 to 30 percent, sometimes even more of their ancestry is not even African. It comes from European ancestors. So 
um, these tests and the language and the logic of race um, in these genetic ancestry tests are just really different than a U.S. census way of thinking about race. And my understanding is that that's what that new language really um, is that he's referring to. So Professor Mason, again, going back to Professor Hoyt, who's the main uh, player in this article, he says using terms like racialized black. Uh, you are cited again or quoted again in this article, uh, and it says that maybe there's some new terms of describing oneself that can also create a psychological buffer against the assault of racist assumptions and stereotypes and feelings of otherness embodied in the centuries old racial categories. Uh, what might those other terms be? That's what I guess I'm trying to get at. Like Professor Monk, you talked about, you know, language around those uh studies, those genome studies. But for you, Professor Mason, what might that language be? Well, part of it is using language not dissimilar from Dr. Hoyt's, um, like a person who gets racialized as Black or a person who gets racialized as white, centering the human first, something that race does not do, <laughs> right? At, for some people anyway, um, because it is a dehumanizing apparatus. So I use language like that. Um, and what I've come to learn and recognize is that because we continue to use language, the language of race in a way that does maintain people's belief in essence, that there is a biological essence, right? And even a cultural essence that stems from race biologically, because that's how we tend to use language, we uphold and naturalize the category of race and often in unintentional ways. And that when we're able to center the person first, and show that the external apparatus of racism is something that's happening to the person. Um, students express time and time again how that, just that shift, right, which can seem rhetorical or about semantics, but is actually like deeper than that, especially for folks who are racialized as Black, um, are able to free themselves from some of the internalized racism that they are otherwise subject to and are able to hear about experiences of racism I'm at a PWI, for, for instance, and things happen and not have it be earth shattering in ways that it doesn't have to be. Right. We don't have. So to is there any but I guess what I'm asking, is there any other language other than racialized black or racialized white that you suggest that we use? Oh, sure. Um, well, in the racist anti-racist, I talk about how even the spelling of racism, how I spell it, I spell it with the word race in it. Um, now that doesn't necessarily translate audibly unless I say race and then have a dramatic pause and then say ism, right? But, 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 but Professor Mason, what I'm trying to get is like, give me another way that we're going to describe ourselves right now. You ask Ariva what she is. I'm going to say I'm a black woman or I'm an African-American woman. Professor Hoyt's going to say he's a racialized black. So give me another way uh, to describe myself, an adjective. Oh, I think we can get a lot more creative than we get because what does that assertion of black? But, I, but give it to me. Give it to me. What is it? I, I, I'm, I'm tenacious. I, I'm bold. I'm beautiful. I'm resilient. Okay. I'm powerful. I'm okay. smart. I'm creative. I'm there imaginative. Okay. Right. Um, there, there are plenty of other adjectives that are more precise. I, I love hip hop. <laughs> I love R and B. Beyonce. Oh my gosh! I wish I could have gone to the Renaissance <laughs> concert. Um, there are plenty of ways that I can describe myself, both through personality and culturally, how I show up in the world that 
that we link to race and the popular imagination constantly because we conflate race with culture and ethnicity, et cetera. But that as Professor Monk was talking about and as Professor Gates, who I'm deeply inspired and influenced by, we need new language, freer language to talk about all of these other real aspects of humanity that add value, whereas racism itself does not add value. I, I reject the notion that I, I profit from racism and being racialized as black in 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 this um context um and so all right let me, let me i want to get uh we're going to run out of time in a sure, second i want to get daniel oh no it's david i card in <laughs> since we're talking about language and other words uh what do you think uh professor Icard about the way professor hoyt wants to use racialized black or racialized white when he talks about his wife and Professor Mason just, you know, said we could use some other adjectives to describe ourselves. What would that do? Like what what practical impact would that have on us as black folks? Uh, Martin Luther King was asked at one point in time what he thought was the um, barriers to racial equality. And um, and he said sincere ignorance and conscientious stupidity. Um, and I think there's I think we can be sincere when we deal with our white brothers and sisters um, and they can be sincere about being colorblind and, you know, wanting to deal with the facts and the realities of our equality of our DNA. But as again, the late Derek Bell has said, um, what has been proven time and time again in the U S is that racism is a permanent institution, right? Uh, Donald Trump doesn't have to say make America, I want to make America white again. He said, I just want to make America great again. But because the ways that race is coded within the DNA of U.S. language, they understand what he is saying. But but Professor Hoyt and Mason are saying we can change that language. That's what I'm asking you. Can we change that language? I, I don't, I don't, I don't think you, we don't, the, uh, uh, the average net worth, I think of a black Bostonian is like $7 compared to the average net worth of a white Bostonian being like a quarter of a million dollars. That is based on economic realities that have been exploited over generation after generation, creating these huge gaps in terms of access and power. So when you start talking about those kind of gaps in power and like who controls this narrative, who controls the dynamics that could shift this, when you look at, at those kind of economic dynamics, Black folks are not in control of how that narrative is going to be weaponized and utilized against us. It would be great if there was a way in which we could develop some type of um, reaction, retort to that, that would explode that discourse and really force into the public sphere a real reckoning with the facts and the data. But that's the whole point of white supremacy, that it refuses to be logical it refuses to deal with the fact. It refuses to deal with the history. Why do you think they're trying to outlaw the study of black history in places like Florida and Tennessee? They want to make sure that we can't articulate a critique of white supremacy throughout history, that we will be in a space where we will have these conversations out of the context of okay, white supremacy. So power. are you then saying I got to go lawyer on you because I, I need y'all to like give me like this in simple fifth grade language so that my viewers and listeners get it. Are you now saying that you don't believe we can change? I can call myself Ariva the racialized black and to the white person, I'm still Ariva the black. 
Absolutely. girl, woman, whatever. Absolutely. And- <laughs> I don't I don't believe again. And I've said it earlier before. And, and I'll say it again in terms of James Baldwin. James Baldwin says the reason why I am black is because you as a white person insist on being white. Right. Mm. Like like race has a utility. It has a currency. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, as, a, as, a, as the professor said before, when they put on the census free and enslaved, they didn't have to say black. Mm-hmm. Right. Because it's built into the language It's built into how we identify ourselves culturally, how we identify ourselves as Americans. White. Toni Morrison said um, in order whiteness functions on the not me and the not free. Mm-hmm. Right. That 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 we're we're dealing with the polar opposites, the way that whiteness gains its identity is through the negation of black humanity. OK, I'm going to give you the last word, Professor Monk. I ask you the same question. Racialized black. Is that a term that you hope uh, becomes used, uh, you know, in the vernacular as we as black people define ourselves? Maybe shows up on the 2030 census. I think it's probably not worth the trouble, mainly for all the reasons that Professor Icard outlined. I don't think a language change in and of itself is going to be ground shifting, shaking, earth moving enough to really do the work that we would need to do uh, in this country, even for things like internalized racism, because absent all those material struggles changing for most African-Americans, the linguistic aspect, I just don't think it's enough. All right. Got to leave it there. We are out of time. What an interesting conversation. Thanks so much to all of you. Thanks for your insights on this very uh, this kind of complex issue. Uh, I'm glad I ran across that article. Thank you for the contributions, uh, Professor Mason and uh, Professor Monk, that you made to that article. And thanks, Daniel. Always good to see you, Professor David Eichhardt. <laughs> Next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers in the Raw Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.